Our campaign is called Worthy. This is the, my last sermon in this campaign. Normally we'd have a guest speaker today because this is the beginning of our conference week. So if you showed up hoping to hear a guest speaker, I'm sorry. Uh, you got me again. Uh, we had Josh come and speak earlier uh, in the campaign. So he kind of took that slot and we navigated because summertime is uh, vacation time and all that. Whatever. You guys get it. So I'm preaching today. Next week we'll have a guest speaker. Uh, Levi Kettleson from Journey Church is going to come speak for us. So this campaign, we're talking about how God is worthy, how God is the only one who is worthy of our worship. Uh, we talked in the second half, well, first half, we talked about just the, the spontaneous forms of worship when we're drawn to worship by something beautiful in creation, or we were outside or planned to be outside, but that never actually happened. Uh, it happened one out of the four because it rained on Sundays in a drought, which was a real bummer, but whatever. We talked about that, uh, talked about how God is seen in creation, how we can just worship God for the common grace, how God is visible in creation, as we're going to read about today in Romans chapter 1. In the second half of this campaign, we talked a lot about uh, more formal forms of worship and why we do some of these things uh, that we do in worship, and talked about private worship, community life, preaching, praise, why we sing so much, why I preach sermons all the time and all of this stuff. We talked about why we do that. And what I've been trying to communicate to you guys, and I hope you're getting, is just the value of worship, the joy of worship, how we're created for this, and, and how we all worship. So whether, and we're going to see it today yet again, we, we all worship, right? Whether you're an atheist, you worship. We all worship. The, the question is, what do we worship? Do we worship God or do we worship something else? What do we adore ultimately? Who or what is the supreme object of our affection? That is your functional God. That is what you worship. And we all worship because we all adore things. We all desire things. We all cherish things. And so I've been trying to plead with you to get across the message that we need to worship God and worship God alone. And that these things that we do in church aren't, aren't technically worship. We're, these are vehicles that are meant to get us to worship. And how Jesus calls us to worship God in spirit and in truth. So if we're not worshiping God in spirit and in truth through these vehicles of worship, then we're not worshiping God. So if we're singing, but we're not singing in spirit and in truth, it's not worship, as we talked about last week. We're just singing a song. Those are different things, right? So today, I've been, I've been trying to frame it in the positive perspective of like, worship, here's why. Today we're going to talk about it in the negative perspective, all right? Um, so today I'm answering the question of what happens when we don't worship. And we're going to be in Romans 1. And in Romans 1, like this isn't, okay, this is on the macro scale, like large scale, humanity wide scale, okay? Um, Paul's not talking about, like, if you don't sing a song, <laughs> like, if you didn't attend church one Sunday. Like, that's, that's not what he means here, okay? Like, this isn't going to happen to you if you miss a Sunday, right? Or, like, wasn't feeling it one Sunday, okay? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a macro scale of humanity at large in verse 18, and then he's going to focus on the Gentile world, which in the Jewish mind, there was two groups. There's the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles are just everybody else. And the Jews were the people who to whom God had given the law. God's chosen people, God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then through them, they became 
the people of God. And God gave them the law. God had a special relationship with them. And through them came the Messiah, who was to be the blessing to all the world. Our big idea is our sin problem is rooted in our worship problem. That's what Paul's trying to tell us in Romans chapter 1. So often we get stuck on sins and individual sins, whether it's our sins or other people's sins. We get so hung up on those and we're trying to put band-aids over gunshot wounds. We're trying to take care of the symptoms when we're not getting to the root cause. What Paul's trying to tell the church of Rome in Romans 1 is that the root cause is worship. And if we're not worshiping, and if we're not talking about worship in the church and driving towards that together, then we're just managing symptoms. We're plugging holes in a sinking ship as more are springing up, right? So I'm going to preach this text with all the truth in and love that, that I can muster, okay? This is a tough text. And as I'm preaching this, some of you guys are going to be arguing with me. I know that, and I'm saying it out front, all right? And it's one thing to argue with me, okay? If I don't say it right, argue all you want. <laughs> if I misspeak, we can argue with that. It's another thing to argue with God. And we need some nuance there. It's okay to say to God, why? I don't, I don't understand. That's okay. That's okay. It's okay to say, I don't see what you're doing here. I don't, I don't quite, I don't get it yet. Would you, would you reveal more to me? That's, that's one thing. That's a humble posture towards God. That's a posture of worship, right? It's a posture of recognizing that God is greater than you. Bible 101, right? Theology 101. God's greater than you are. <laughs> God knows more than you do. So it's another thing entirely to say, God, I know what you've said, and I disagree. You see how that's a worship problem? What you're doing is saying, God, yes, I see what you've said, and I think that this is what you have said, but I think I know more than you. Okay, there, there's a difference in those two questions, right, in those questioning. One is a posture of humility towards God, saying, I don't understand yet, help me understand. Another one is a posture of putting yourself above God, which is the antithesis of worship, right? We can't flip those two. Okay, so when we're, we're in the book of Romans, it's important for us to know the context of what's going on here. Uh, Jewish Christians, they've been exiled from Rome for about five years. This was a relatively young church, and there were... Jews living in Rome who had accepted Jesus and put their faith and trust in Jesus. They'd been exiled from Rome for five years. And then when they came back into the church, those who hadn't been exiled, those Gentile Christians, Christians who were formerly pagan, likely worshipped Roman gods, things were different. <laughs> they weren't following the dietary laws of the Old Testament anymore. They weren't following the uh, holidays, the holy days 
as much as the Jewish Christians who returned thought that they should. So they weren't eating kosher, they weren't following the holy days, maybe practicing Sabbath as much as they thought they should. And it caused a great deal of conflict in the church. And Paul refers to them in two different groups. One is the strong, which is kind of a <laughs> not-so-subtle kind of dig at the Jewish Christians, because he calls the Gentile Christians stronger in faith. <laughs> he says, now, they, they actually have more faith in Jesus than you guys do, because you guys are reverting back to the law, and you don't have to anymore, because Jesus has set us free from that. So these are mostly Gentile Christians. They recognized that all foods were clean. They didn't have to follow the holy days, etc. They weren't obligated to follow the Mosaic law, but they listened to the Spirit of God, whom God had given them when they believed in Jesus and followed him. And then the weak. The weak are those Jewish Christians who returned and felt like they still had to follow the law in order to please God, but still believed in Jesus. And so that's the context. In chapter 14, we get a lot of specific instructions, but really chapters 1 through 11, Paul's laying the theological background for why they need to be united as one. <laughs> okay. So Romans is a great book to read today in the church because we have our conflicts as well. They're a little different. I haven't met with anybody who's like, I just don't know if I should eat kosher or not. Like, it doesn't happen often in the same exact context, but we have a lot of tension. We have a lot of disagreements, a lot of disunity in the church, and the theological basis for why we should be united remains the same. And so Romans 1 through 11 is so powerful, it's so good, it is such rich theology that we can't just say, oh, that's for the scholars. We need to grasp this if the church is to experience the fullness of Christ, to be united together, to love one another as Christ has called us to. So basically, Paul's whole point here is that, hey, both you Gentiles and both you Jews, you guys need the righteousness of Christ to be imputed to you as well. Both of you need the grace of God, the mercy of God in salvation, equally. We're going to read what he says to the Gentiles in chapter 1, but Paul kind of, he throws a few haymakers here, but he throws a few haymakers at the Jewish Christians as well in the next couple of chapters. So he doesn't exempt them. In chapters 2 and 3, he he gets at the lies that the Jewish Christians were believing. But here in chapter 1, he talks to the Gentile Christians. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cruise, all right? And I'm gonna, you guys are going to ask, you guys are going to be like, wait, what, he just blew through that? It's in the devotional, okay? Like, it's in the devotional. But again, I want you to see what Paul's plea to them to worship. How worship is central. Paul writes, I'm, ob I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. So Paul's planning on coming to Rome to preach the gospel, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says. And this is kind of the driving idea of the whole book. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness, okay, so Paul wants to come and preach the gospel to the church in Rome, and in this gospel is the righteousness of God that is revealed, the righteousness that is by faith. The righteous will live by faith, as it is written, he says. So this is the driving theme. He's going to say, both of you guys like, are sinful apart from God. 
Both of you need the grace of God, the righteousness of God to be imputed to you through faith. So that's his driving idea, and he's going to get to that. But to set it up, he has to first reveal how desperate we are for this need. Both the Jews who had the law and thought that they were righteous but were self-righteous and needed the righteousness of Christ, and to the Gentiles who were more obviously sinful. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. This is all people, right? It's referring to both Jews and Gentiles here when he says that. And the wrath of God, okay, so again, he brings up a lot of topics that we're uncomfortable with and we're going to squirm a little bit with. But he talks about the wrath of God. God's wrath is not like the Hulk who can't control it when he gets angry, right, and just goes off the handle. Like, that's not God's wrath. God's wrath is calculated. It is his justified response to evil. It's controlled. And we really want God to be wrathful if we think about it because we want God to be just. Do we want a God who just turns a blind eye and says, eh, boys will be boys to Hitler and the Nazis? No, we don't, right? We don't want that. (laughs) Because that appeals to our sense of justice that wrong has been done. And there's a righteous indignation. That's what God has. Things like sex trafficking, right? Like Those things are so evil. And I wouldn't be able to worship a God who wasn't wrathful against evil. Problem is... There's evil in here, too. So then is it just on a scale that we get to tell God, like, it's okay for you to be wrathful about this, but not this? We don't get to tell God that. God's wrathful against evil. All evil. So how is the wrath of God being revealed? Okay, it's present, right? This is happening right now, as Paul says. So what what does he mean by that? We've got to keep reading, and we'll find out why. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. It's going into general revelation, how we see God in creation, and therefore it's obvious that there's an intelligent designer. It doesn't get us to Jesus dying on the cross to save us, but it'll bring us to there as a God. Should. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Tom Schreiner, in his commentary on Romans, excellent commentary on Romans, he writes, the fundamental truth of the universe is that God exists and that he should be worshipped and served and his name should be praised. What he's getting at here is this is the most basic truth. (laughs) This is why the Proverbs say the, uh, the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. The most basic truth of the universe is that God exists and we should worship him as such. God is God and we are not. So we must start there. For although they knew God, again, he's going way back in history to the Gentiles, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. These are worship terms. They didn't glorify God or give thanks, worship. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened, passive, were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Idolatry. Now, we don't make little figurines and worship them anymore. We don't build big golden statues and worship them anymore. Uh, We play football. (laughs) We sing and dance. (laughs) We, We do other things. I think the biggest ones are we ourselves become idols. 
We become the ones who get to tell God what is good and true and moral and right and wrong. We desire pleasure, control, approval more than we desire God, and so we ourselves become God. So we still worship. And notice the word exchanged. If you're a highlighting person, highlight the word exchanged in your Bible. Idolatry is always an exchange of worship. You exchange the worship of God for a cheap substitute. We talked about this earlier. Therefore, in response to this exchange of worship, God gave them over. You may read that and think like, oh, that's not so bad. At least he isn't smiting, right, in his wrath. This might be worse. This is arguably worse. God giving sinful humanity over to their sinful desires of their hearts, to a depraved mind, he's going to say later. When you read stories of the saints of the past and you hear of those who had experienced the presence of God, who knew what it was like to meet with God, to feel his presence, to know that God is with them, and then to go through a season of time where they don't sense that anymore, that's tragic. When Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think that was the worst pain that Jesus felt. Far worse than being nailed to a piece of wood. Because Jesus has experienced such intimacy with his Father. And then to not share that for that moment where the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus had to break him. That had to be the worst feeling that Jesus ever experienced. So God gave them over. The grace of God, the presence of God, think of it like a, like a dam that's blocking off just torrents of water flowing. The grace in God and the presence of God is what prevents evil. It stymies the evil of our heart. It pushes away the darkness of the devil and demons. And when God gives us over and removes his presence, evil runs rampant. And that's a tragedy. And it leads to the ruin of your soul. So God gives them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. This is what God actively does as he steps away, removes his presence. And he's going to give us a couple of examples of what happens when God removes his presence in response to idolatry of humanity. It's sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. It's just a general term for anything that the Jewish people would consider sexually impure outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. It's very general. It's very broad. That is the only sexual expression in Scripture that is justified. They exchange. There it is again. Idolatry is an exchange. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Look at Paul. This is what I love about scripture. Paul's so great. Like, he's, talking, he's talking about some of the darkest aspects of human existence. And because humanity has 
failed. They've exchanged worship of God for the worship of idols. <laughs> he even mentions God. They've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. He mentions the creator and he's like, I gotta worship. I gotta pause. Who's forever praised. God be forever praised. Amen. May that be our hearts as we read through scripture more and more. You just can't help yourself. That's my, uh, that as we talk about God, you just can't help but praise him because he's so good and you've experienced him and you know that he is good, not just theoretically, but experientially. And so you praise naturally. We talked about that last week. Because of this, God gave them over. There it is again. God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's not entirely clear what he means by the due penalty for their error, but the rest of it's pretty clear. Uh, at least it seems to me he's talking about homosexuality. And Paul's talking about the traditional Jewish teaching of his day. He does nothing to really change or to alter the traditional Jewish teaching of his day that Jews still hold today, at least Orthodox Jews do, that the homosexual act is sinful. So sex and sexuality was a major issue in the Roman world, too. No matter how much we like to think about that we're unique, we're, we're not. <laughs> These sin patterns kind of recycle. And so in the devotional, I go into more detail about this. I link you to uh, Preston Sprinkle, who is one of the best voices I've ever heard on this. Jackie Hill Perry is great on this, too. Christopher Yuan is great on this topic. There's way more than I can talk about here and now. Uh, but Christians, this is a hot-button issue today. Christians disagree on this. Denominations have split over this in the last 10 years. It's real divisive. But suffice it to say, I don't see anything in Scripture that suggests a deviation from the traditional teaching of the Jewish people. And that said, it's still a major issue in the church, and this is why. Remember, keep in mind what Paul's talking about here. Worship. Draw our eyes back to worship. Let's not focus our eyes on the culture war issue. Focus our eyes on worship and drawing people to worship. But this is a result of God giving over sinful humanity to its own shameful desires. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over, again, to a depraved mind. When you see this repeated again and again, it's important. So that they do what ought not be done. So if you think Paul's just picking on sex and sexuality, why is he picking on that, right? <laughs> he's not. He's going to get to everybody, all right? So if you're like, that's not my sin, he's getting there, all right? They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, all right? So the CEO of a Fortune 500 company who's exploiting people is just as guilty of God giving them over, just as guilty of sin as any other sexual sin. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So remember, this is what happens when God gives sinful humanity over. When God removes his presence, 
that pushes back, that fights back the darkness and evil. It's a pretty, it's a pretty bad state. It's a pretty sad place to be in. And in that podcast that I link you to, I think it's on Wednesday, Preston Sprinkle is having a conversation um, with Dr. Parler. That's his name. I forgot to write down his first name. But he asked him, how do we present? How do we talk about this? How do we talk about sexual ethics in our culture, in a world where it seems more loving, it seems better to go away from the truth of scripture. And his answer, I think, was so profound. He says we need to present that the way of Jesus is better. We as the church need to first live it. We need to live as if the way of Jesus is better. Don't live it as if these rules and obligations that the scripture calls us to is a heavy burden that we have to just bear and do. No, there's joy. There's peace in following the way of Jesus. It's not a burden path, the path to the fullness of life is found in surrendering our life to Jesus. This is why we re reworked our mission statement to say to discover abundant life in Christ and live it together. Because we live in a culture of competing meta-narratives, of competing ideologies all the time. And what we as the church have to live and present to the world around us is that this way is better. That God, as our loving Father, has told us the best way to abundant life. And so living in his way, even though we don't understand, we don't know why, we don't fully grasp all of the reasons, we just trust that God has our best interest in mind. That God who loves us has revealed to us how we ought to live. And that this narrative of the gospel is true even though it makes absolutely no sense to the outside world. It's foolishness to the Gentiles, Paul says. But the way to life is the way to death. I've preached on this a number of times. But we have to keep saying it because it doesn't make sense. The way to resurrection life is first death to self. It is the way of Jesus, who died on the cross, and was raised to life. And so the way to the fullness of life is through surrendering to Jesus. Surrendering your will to him. Confessing, God, I am not smarter than you. You know more than me. And so what your word declares, I'm going to believe. Even if I find it challenging and difficult. Because, guys, this isn't just a agree-to-disagree matter. It's worship. Do we genuinely worship is the question. Now, heart must be one of worship, of surrender to the truth of God, to find the fullness of life in Christ, even if it doesn't make sense. Even if it makes less sense than a Savior dying on the cross, than God dying only to be risen three days later. So worship is so important, you guys. Worship 
exchanging worship of God for something else. Not a small matter. As Paul says here, it leads to the removal of God's presence from humanity. And leads to the ruin of the human soul. His driving point is ultimately that we need the righteousness of Christ. That we need to know Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles. So I don't want to end on that. Let's go to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. I'm just going to read this. Band, you guys can come and get set up here. And this is a good reason to worship, right? What he's driving them to is, hey, guys, look at who God is. Look at what God has done for you. How can you not worship? It is the most obvious truth in the universe. Don't go down that cascade of God removing his presence and more and more evil coming in. He declares the gospel through the lens of righteousness. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not just the sins that he mentioned. It's me, it's you, right? Your sin is just as deserving of wrath than anybody else's. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. So back to 1.18, wrath of God being poured out against humanity. God presented Christ as the sacrifice of atonement. So he atoned for our sins. He restored our relationship to him because Jesus took the wrath of God for us in our place. So that we can be in the presence of God fully. If that doesn't cause you to worship, I don't know what does. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just in the one who justifies. And the cross, God has maintained his justice and justified sinful humanity who is in rebellion against him. And the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus, and it's only by faith in Jesus. It's only by faith in Jesus that the wrath of God is imputed on Christ and we are given his righteousness. So Lord, would your spirit work in our hearts? Draw us to worship, Lord, for those who are in you, Christ, who know you may this just serve as a reminder that Jesus, you have taken the wrath of God for us, that Jesus, you have given us your righteousness, not because we deserved it, not because we followed the law and we're so good or because we just found it out on our own. No, Lord, because of your mercy and your grace and your love, you have saved us. So Lord, the only proper response is worship. We give you thanks. So Lord, would you draw our eyes to you, to worship you, in spirit and in truth. Lord, we thank you for your presence. 
It's only we have nothing in and of ourselves to remove darkness and evil, to remove the sinful nature that we possess. But Jesus, you've given us your spirit. And in the gospel, we find power for your righteousness. Let's stand, let's sing praises to our Savior one more time.